The Israelites are coming to worship their God in the temple as if everything is just fine. But outside the temple, they are worshiping other gods. And some were even adopting the horrifying Canaanite practice of child sacrifice. And so Jeremiah makes his very unpopular announcement. The God of Israel is coming in judgment. He's going to destroy his own temple and punish Israel by sending an enemy from the north. This is an army that God would allow to conquer Jerusalem. And as you read on, you discover he's talking about the great empire of Babylon. Would y'all pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Raise your hand if you've heard of Stockholm Syndrome. Okay, it's, yeah, but right? So it's, it's a real diagnosable condition where the victim identifies with and empathizes with their abuser or their captor, right? It's a real thing. It happens. And what you may not realize, every single human being who's ever lived suffers from it. We're reading this morning out of Jeremiah 18, verses 1 through 12. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel, and the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. Now therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. But they say, that is in vain. We will follow our own plans and will every one act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's paint a picture here for a minute, right? Jeremiah is prompted to go down to a potter's house. And I want you to know, most likely, he doesn't hear the audible voice of God saying, Jeremiah, go to the potter's house. It's important to understand that because I want you to understand how God communicates with us so that you can hear it for yourselves in your own lives. What probably happens here is Jeremiah just sort of gets this sense that he should walk down to the potter's house. Or he just happened to be passing by, and in hindsight thought, oh, the Lord directed me to that place. And maybe the potter is a friend, so he just feels a sudden urge to go visit. 
Maybe the thought of a potter keeps popping into his mind unbidden and he figures he's supposed to go down there, right? Maybe there's just this sudden intuition he needs to go to the potter's house, whatever it is. But God rarely speaks with an audible voice booming out of the heavens to hear us. The way he guides us is often a lot more subtle and we have to learn to pay attention to it. And so he goes and he, he sees the potter making something on his wheel and something happens to it. It, it collapses, it tears, it bends, whatever. The only way the potter can fix it is to take this vessel he's made, smash it back down into a shapeless lump of clay, and start remaking it. And Jeremiah realizes now why God sent him to the potter's house. Now again, I don't think this is Jeremiah hearing a voice booming out of the heavens explaining what he's seeing or, or speaking in his ear. I think this is Jeremiah recognizing that God led him to this place so he could see this image and interpret its meaning. Remember, this is a sermon Jeremiah is preaching that's being written down. And the potter and the clay are an image he's using to make his point. It's an image that everyone in his audience would be familiar with because they would all see potters working a lot more often than you or I do, unless you're Kelly. They all are familiar with what a potter does. It's very possible there's not even a real potter. And this is actually like a parable he's telling, the way Jesus would use stories to get his points across. And again, I'm, I'm making that point so you understand. When we talk about prophets and prophecy, that is a gift that is open to everyone. If God is speaking to you, it may not be with a, with a wild vision or a voice booming out of the heavens. It may be more subtle, but that can still be prophecy. It can still be the word of the Lord working in your life. Either way, whatever it is, Jeremiah gets the message. The potter was shaping the clay into something, but it became so misshapen, the only way to fix it was to destroy what he'd already made and remake it from scratch. And this is what God will have to do with the people of Israel. Or at this point, it's just the kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom's gone. And so the potter shapes the clay, right? Now, if you've never watched a potter work, right, a potter is doing at least two things at once. And Kelly, it's probably even more than that. You would know better than I do. Um, but I've, I've watched the guy who made those chalices when we make them, right? So you, he's making the wheel spin. And as the wheel spins, he's using his hand to shape the spinning clay. He is at the same time shaping the thing and sustaining the motion that keeps it going. God sustains the world. He didn't just make the world and let go of it. He, he doesn't just leave us to our own devices. God's not distant. Every split second of time, every square inch of space is sustained by God. We exist because God keeps us in existence. You'll read in the Psalms things like, Oh Lord, do not forget me. And the reason they say that is because they genuinely understood it as if God forgets us for a moment, we wink out of existence. We exist because God thinks about us. That's how the Jewish people understood it in the ancient world. Right? So much like the way a potter's wheel spins because he keeps it spinning, God keeps the world in existence. And God is always at work in the world. He's guiding us. He's shaping us at all times. But we can and do go astray. And when we stray too far, 
God has to take drastic action to come back and correct us. At the end of December, I'm going to have surgery on my nose because I have a deviated septum, which I didn't know about until like a month ago, and now I can't stop thinking about it. Right? Um, and when I say that, I mean the nurse looked up my nose, and she literally looked in there and said, I don't know how you're breathing right now. <laughs> so the way they fix that is they thread a balloon up there, which sounds like the weirdest thing I've ever heard, and they inflate it until it pops the cartilage into where they want it to be. And thankfully, I'll be unconscious when they do that. Um, but it's misshapen, it's out of alignment, and they have to go in and reshape it forcefully for it to work right. And what Jeremiah is saying here, by the way, is that God is not just doing this for his people, but for all nations. Every nation, every kingdom, right? Now, obviously, the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, they have a, a special relationship to God that the rest of the world doesn't enjoy. But every nation and every kingdom is under God's rule, whether they realize it or not. Every king, every government derives its authority from God, whether they realize it or not. And that means that God can and will use even unbelieving leaders for his purposes. And that even unbelieving leaders will be punished for their rebellion against God. He's going to use Babylon to fulfill his purposes, and then he's going to punish Babylon. And the, the implication you get from the prophecy, from, from not just Jeremiah, but from Isaiah as well, is kind of that he punishes Babylon for enjoying it a little too much. <laughs> Which sounds kind of, you know, but the, they go through all the cruelty and, and the barbarism that they inflict on people and says, you know, I, I use you for my purposes, but you went too far. And you'll be punished for it. They don't believe in God, but they are still carrying out his purposes, and they are still subject to his authority. So they'll carry out God's will by destroying Jerusalem and carrying the people off into exile, and then for their brutality and for their cruelty in doing God's will, they will be punished. God will raise up nations, and God will tear them down. And any nation that does evil will suffer the wrath of God, and any nation that repents of its evil will be forgiven. All throughout the Old Testament, we read that evil and good, punishment and forgiveness, redemption and condemnation, these all take effect at the individual level and at the communal level. There is one person's sin and there is the nation's sin. There is one person's righteousness and there is the nation's righteousness. Jeremiah is faithful to the covenant. He's righteous. He follows the the laws. He does what he's supposed to do, and he preaches God's word to the people, and he is still going to be in Jerusalem when the Babylonians destroy it. His life is going to be spared, but he still suffers to some extent when the kingdom as a whole is punished for its sins. See, God must bring about justice in his world, but he won't do it without warning. Between the work of Isaiah and the work of Jeremiah, God spends a little over 140 years warning the people of Judah what's going to happen. They're only in exile 70 years. He spends twice as long as he's going to exile them, trying to warn them to turn back and avoid the punishment that's coming to them. That's the length God will go to try and get his people to turn back to him. 
And so Jeremiah preaches to the people of Jerusalem. Over and over again, he says, God is bringing destruction to you unless you repent and turn from your evil ways. And how do they respond? We'll follow our own plans and we're going to act according to the stubbornness of our own hearts. Now, I don't know that they actually said that back to him, right? That would be pretty cool if they did, but they don't. But that is, in essence, what their response is. We're not going to listen to you. We're going to do whatever we want to do. Or to put it another way, we don't want to change. We'd rather keep on doing what we're doing and risk destruction. And that is the human condition. We don't want to change. Even if we know that we are doing evil, we don't want to change. Even if we know that what we're doing is going to ruin us, we don't want to change. Even if we know we're being foolish, we don't want to change. And we've all had that experience on a small level, haven't we? Haven't we all had like an argument with a friend or a spouse where we know we are absolutely dead wrong and we won't admit it? Is that just me? <laughs> you have that point where you realize I've been in the wrong this entire time and you just can't bring yourself to admit it. You've all done it. You just don't want to say it. I know. <laughs> now, I've said this before and I'll say it again. We all, we all like our sins. We all have our favorite sins, right? I said mine's gluttony. I stand by that. But we all, if you don't want to admit it, we all have our favorite sins. Something we may not even want to admit is a sin because we like it so much. Our own behaviors, our own addictions, our thought patterns that we know are bad for us. We know they're sinful. We know they're harming our relationships with our loved ones. We know that they are drawing us away from God and making it hard to be faithful, but we don't want to stop. We don't want to stop. Because changing our ways means submitting ourselves to God. It's the only way to change. Submit yourself to God. Cede control of your life over to him. That's what it means, and we don't want to. Their problem was idol worship. They had built temples and altars to all these different gods so they could go worship there. And they might still come to the temple, most of them did. That's what gets lost in translation. They didn't only worship at the altars of their idols. They would go worship at their idols, and then they'd come to the temple in Jerusalem and offer the sacrifices and go through the rituals, and then they'd go back to their pagan idols during the week. Why? It's a lot easier to worship an idol. People made the idols, right? If you can design your own God, you can make it do whatever you want to do. You can make it require only the things you want it to require. Your idol won't demand anything from you that you don't want to give it. So it is a lot easier to go and worship at the idols and then just go through the motions in the real temple instead of actually doing what your God demands you do. That's the struggle when your God is real. You don't get to control what he asks you to do. You don't get to control what he demands you sacrifice. You don't get to control how he tells you to live your life. And that is a real struggle. 
And I hope you realize, by the way, I'm being very intentional in including myself in all of this. This is not pastor pointing the finger at the congregation telling you to shape up kind of deal. This is my struggle too. It is hard to just turn control of your life over to God. It is hard to submit to what he's asking you to do when you don't want to do it. It's hard to make the sacrifices he asks you to make. I struggle with this. Everyone I know struggles with this to some extent. Every single person. You know, all of us recognize our faults and our flaws. All of us recognize the mistakes we make. We may not be willing to admit them to anyone other than ourselves, but all of us recognize those things about ourselves. We all know what they are deep down. It may even be only subconscious for some of you for some of your faults, but you all know what they are. And if you sat down and thought about it, you could identify them. Our challenge is not identifying our sins. We don't need any help with that. Our challenge is changing. Our challenge is actually doing the things we need to do to rid ourselves of our sinful ways. But we have an advantage that the people of Judah didn't. We have the cross. We have the Holy Spirit. We have God writing his law on our hearts. On the cross, Jesus breaks the power of sin and sets us free. We have the freedom to leave our sin behind. Freedom that really the the people of Jeremiah's time could only dream of in a lot of ways. But we're like hostages who've been held captive for so long we've fallen in love with our captors. And when rescue finally comes, we actually aren't so sure we want to leave. We're standing in the middle of all these broken chains trying to decide how to put them back on. And Jesus is just waiting, holding his hands out for us to grasp. Grace is there for the taking. Freedom is there for the taking. If we surrender to Jesus, he breaks the power of sin. That doesn't mean we won't still make mistakes. It doesn't mean we just automatically become perfect. It doesn't mean that we won't still have our flaws. But it means we won't be held captive by our sins anymore. He gives us the power to do what we cannot do without him. It means that when God calls us to repentance, we don't have to respond by saying we don't want to change. When we say we are saved by faith, that's what it means. We place our faith in Jesus and he breaks the power of sins. Jesus has broken us out. He's freed us. He's given us the chance to avoid destruction and all we have to say to him is here. You can have control. I will do whatever you tell me to do. The kingdom of Judah rejected the word of God. And so the word worked destruction on them. And their kingdom ended. Permanently. It never existed again. We now live in the kingdom of Christ. And God's word lives within us. All we have to do is let him take charge and he will lead us to safety. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.